morning. How great is our God. I don't think we can spend, I I think we can spend the rest of our life And I think we will spend all of eternity, and I don't think we'll get the full greatness of God. That's how great he is. As we look back at Ruth, I'll be in Ruth, the fourth chapter this morning. We are going to see, we're going to see that greatness um, in how he, as we wrap up this, this book, we're going to see the greatness of God and how he worked through these servants of his and Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. And we're going to see that extended past those servants. Just as whenever he does great things in your life and when he does great things in my life, we may not even get to see on this side of heaven how far that greatness goes. But make no mistake, the greatness that God does that you can see immediately extends way beyond anything we can ever know. Uh, Example of this that when I heard this, it it just gave me chills. Um, If you you know me, if you've known me very long, you know that I've, I've been a student of Ray Comfort. In a lot of ways, Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, The Way of the Master, um, had a big influence on my life, uh, watching the, the shows and going out on the streets and preaching the gospel. And I, I, I watched a lot of what they said. I read his books, and, and I learned a lot from Ray Comfort. And Ray Comfort was, a, he's, a, he's a student of Spurgeon, um, very, very much so. Um, a lot of the things, a lot of the the conviction that he had to go out and preach the gospel and use the law and use the and, and bring people to the knowledge of their sin, so that then they could he could bring them to the knowledge and the need of a savior, came from obviously studying the word, but also reading Spurgeon. And at some point along the lines, Ray Comfort came across a young man, and preached the gospel to him. And this young man got saved. And they found out he was like a great-great-grandson of Charles Spurgeon. God did great things in the life of Charles Spurgeon. He has extended... God's grace through Spurgeon has been extended to all walks of Christianity... And everybody quotes Spurgeon because he was, they call him the prince of preachers, and he was, he was greatly used by God in preaching the word. And he had no idea that one day his influence on another man would actually bring his family, a grand, great-grandson, whatever it was, I don't remember how far down the line it was, but would bring him to Christ. These pictures that God paints are absolutely incredible. Let's take a look. Let me pray, and then we'll take a look at chapter 4. Father, 
I thank you, God. I thank you for your blessings. I thank you for this gathering that we have and um, just the joy that it brings me. I thank you for our musicians and our singers and their faithfulness to serve in that capacity. Thank you. I just thank you, God, for the fellowship and the community which you have given us in the church, in the church as a whole, and in this particular church body. God, I thank you for all that are here and and the joy that they bring, the joy that we have when we fellowship, God. And I thank you for the common denominator between us all, which is Christ. And I pray, Lord, as we look at this fourth chapter of Ruth, as we look at the completion of this book, that Christ would be magnified. In his name I pray, amen. John Piper said the overall theme of the book of Ruth is the life of the godly. He said it like this, the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. And I thought, wow, that's really true. As we look at the book of Ruth, we've seen some ups and downs. It's not very long, four chapters, a couple of pages. Um, we see some ups and downs. Naomi starts out, things are going well. When we first see Naomi, she's married, she's got a good husband, has sons, everything's going good. Then they move, famine comes to Israel. So it goes up and then it goes down. Famine comes to Israel. They feel like they need to move for whatever. I mean, it was, it was hard times. They move away. They move to the land of Moab. And then there's two marriages to Moabite women. And I don't know if that, at that time, I don't know if Naomi thought that was good or bad. We don't really know. But her two sons marry outside of Israel, marry outside of, of the Jewish customs and marry these Moabite women. And we notice in verse 4 in chapter 1, it's very likely that the women are barren. These two Moabite women are married for 10 years and there's no children. If you understand Jewish culture at all or even the culture at that time at all, that is detrimental to people. Their number one thing was family, leaving a legacy, leaving an heir, leaving behind children and so we see this low in that then tragedy really strikes and Naomi's husband dies and she's left there then both of her sons die and it's three women starving extreme low and one of them stays and one of them clings to her you remember Ruth clung to Naomi she said no I'm going to go with you I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to serve you. Your God will be my God. But they're in this extreme despair. But they go back to Bethlehem because they hear that the food, the, the, the famine is over. There's more food there. So they go back. But they arrive in great despair. And then we see God provide short-term physical needs through gleaning and through his, um, his economy. He is a, he's provided ways for them to survive. And then we see great hope enter into their lives as Boaz enters the scene. And we see even higher hope because he has faith. He has put um, he's put favor on Ruth, the Moabite. But we see even higher hope come along 
when we realize he is the near kinsman redeemer. Maybe he's going to take in Ruth. Maybe he's going to purchase the land. But then there's no proposal. And so you start finding the despair again. But then we as the readers, as you read it, if you're reading it for the first time, you see more hope. Ruth is going to propose to Boaz in a sense. And that's what we saw last time I preached. Ruth went into Boaz and she, she laid at his feet and she asked him, put your covering over me. Put your wings over me. In other words, take me in. Take, make me your wife. And there was obviously this connection, even a romantic connection between the two. As you read through it, you can see that. So we have this hope again. And then it's almost like it's the heirs let out of it. And he says, I would do that. But there's another redeemer closer than I. There's one who actually has the right before I do, according to the law, according to the near kinsman. And that's where it left. It's like a cliffhanger, right? This would make a good Netflix deal. It'd keep you watching the next episode. So here we are, chapter 4. We have several unsolved, unresolved issues in chapter 3. The most pressing of which is, who's going to become Ruth's redeemer? Now, the good news is, Ruth knows there's going to be a redeemer. And so that's good news. She's not going to have to worry about her provisions at this point. However, I doubt if there's any young ladies in here, or older ladies or ladies in general, that would be thrilled to know that this man that they have fallen in love with isn't able to redeem me and I'm going to marry this other man because he has the right. It's not exactly thrilling. It's not exactly Hollywood romance so we have this question will it be Boaz or will it be the other kinsman and then we also have an unresolved issue that Naomi still has no heir there is nobody to follow in the line of Elimelech and take the name um, of their family which is a big deal so let's look at chapter 4 It says, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. So Boaz goes up to the gate and sits down. And I don't know how many of you understand what the gate was. The gate was like a plethora of things. It was the gate to the city, more than likely a walled city. Um, and so it was the elders of the city would sit in that gate. And if anybody came to the city, they were the keepers. So what is your business here? And if they didn't have what they deemed as good business, they would not come in. That would be one thing that happened. It was also kind of almost like the courthouse. The cities in this time were very compact. The streets were narrow. Um, there were market uh, things being sold on the streets, and, and you know, it, there was, it was crowded inside the walls, right, because you had to get inside the walls for protection's sake. So there wasn't a lot of room. It wasn't like we have now where you can just spread out. And so things were cramped. But in the gate, they would have plenty of room for business to take place, um, for, for even legal actions to take place, 
And this is where a lot of that stuff would ta- would happen. So there would be places for, for men to sit, talk, make business deals, make arrangements, this and that. And that's, so that's why he went up there. It was also the place where it'd be easy to find somebody because everybody went through the gate. to If they were working in the fields, they would leave the town, walk through the gate, and then go out to the fields. So if... And, and if you remember at the end of chapter 3, Boaz said, I'm going to take care of this. And Naomi actually said in, in verse 18, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So Boaz is not going to let this linger. He sees the opportunity and he's going right for it. He's not going to, he's not going to give any more time to come in here and mess this up. He tells Ruth... I'm going, to go, I'm going to go see if he wants to redeem you. If he doesn't, I'm going to. So he goes right there the same day, and he finds the other man. It says, he sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so Boaz said, come aside, friend. And that word friend there is uh, it's an interesting one. It's almost like in the Hebrew, it's almost like saying so-and-so. It is obvious that the author here is uh, leaving his name out on purpose. Obviously, Boaz knows who he is. He's a close relative to Boaz. He has to be, or he couldn't be close enough to be the kinsman redeemer. So these are close relatives, possibly cousins. We don't know for sure. Um, But he finds him quickly, and he reaches out to him to get this deal started. And then it says, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Let me, let me read on. And, and I thought to inform you, saying, but it, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. The he there is the, the other relative. He says, so he's telling the friend, so, so understand the stage. Here's this so-and-so, this guy that comes by, the other kinsman, potential redeemer. And he says, hey, Elimelech, Naomi's putting this land up for sale. It belonged to Elimelech. It's rightfully yours to buy. If you will buy it, you can redeem it. And he says, I want it. Am I the only one pulling for Boaz here? I mean, that's what we want, right? We're watching. We're, if you're reading this for the first time, you don't know how it comes. You're, you're, you're thinking, no, no, he can't want it. What are you, what's going on here? And some would even question Boaz at this point. Why would he even bring this to the gate? He had it. Either this guy didn't know about what was going on or he didn't care. Ruth has approached Boaz to want to be married to him. He has already taken care of her in so many ways. Why wouldn't he just say, yeah, 
let's get married. And the answer to that is because it was the honorable, right thing to do according to the law of God. You see, Boaz was a front door kind of man. And he loved Ruth too much to enter a covenant with her that could be accused as unlawful later. Look at 2 Timothy. This is one of those principles that I think we need to glean. It's not the direct, it's not the direct uh, point of the passage, but I think we definitely need to glean this while we're here. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 1, he says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. And look at verse 6. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What Boaz was not going to do was he was not going to fall into that verse 6. He was not going to come in and creep into this household by the back door. He was going to do it in an upfront, honest, according to the law kind of way. And what we can glean from this, young men, is this is how you approach young women. Through the front door. And young women, this is the men you look for. Young or old, it doesn't matter. But this is how it's done. It's not sneaking around, coming in the back door. And, and, and what's amazing is this is really the opposite of what the romantic idea of the world is. The world would have you young men to take the young women in spite of their father's wishes. Watch, watch some TV, watch some movies. It's not uncommon to see the, the father saying no and the, the direction of the narrative of a movie or a book or a TV show is, oh, they're just trying to prevent our young love and all of this. And, and you, they turn you against the father. That's Hollywood's idea of romance. That's the world's idea of romance. The world would call it romantic to rebel against the parents in the name of love. But Boaz says no. Boaz says I'm going to do it God's way. I'm going to go through the front door. He was not that guy. He took it before the elders in broad daylight so there would be no dispute of how it was done was done right. And that's the way it needs to be. Nothing has changed as far as God's economy, as far as how you approach these situations. You do it up front, in the daylight, 
through the front door. And that's why he did that. Even though, even though we're all going, no, we want Boaz to marry Ruth. We want Boaz to redeem Ruth. And yes, and Boaz no doubt wanted to, as we can see. Um, as we can see, when right after this, turn back over to Ruth. So, so he's laid it all out there. He said, "Here's the land, and here's the here's we we got the highs and lows of Ruth, right? And we're riding, riding on this high. Boaz is doing exactly what he said. He's in the gate. He's pursuing this. He's gonna." He's going to redeem Ruth, and the other guy says, I'll do it. There's the curveball, right? But at this point, he's only talked about the land, because look at verse 5. So verse 4, he says, I will redeem it. Verse 5, Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess. You, know, you remember the last time he talked about Ruth, he, took, he left off that part. He no longer referred to Ruth as the Moabitess. He had seen past that. So he brings it in here. He says again, Ruth the Moabitess. Why do you think he does that? The wife of the dead to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. I think Boaz probably planned on the other guy going, yeah, I want the land. I think he probably expected that. Anybody in here, there's not a lot of agriculturalists in here. Has anybody ever heard or seen some deals gone bad, some friendships gone bad over land? I mean, you can see it on, and the, on a worldwide economy. Lots of wars fought over land. And you can see it right inside a family, two brothers that have been raised together and close will turn against each other like wolves over land. It's not hard to predict that the other guy, who's probably a farmer as well, is going to want the land. Easy prediction to make. Yeah, I'll, I'll redeem it. Dude, yeah, I can get it at a lot cheaper than it's actually worth because I'm the near kinsman. Right? Yes, sign me up. But Boaz, I think, knew that. I think he planned that. So here he is. He comes. As soon as he says, yeah, I'll redeem it, he's like, hang on, hang on. There's more to the deal you also have to redeem Ruth, the Moabitess. And it goes farther than that. He, he even says there, he says, the wife of the dead to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. What that means is your first child with Ruth is not going to belong to you. I mean, in a sense, he will, but in, in a legal sense... In a relational sense, the first child is going to take on the name of Elimelech and Naomi, and it's going to be the child of a Moabite. You sure you want to do this? So without going too deep into the law and the culture, because it's, it's kind of difficult to understand, but basically what happened was, this is not a good, did I lose my, no, we're still, this is not a good financial deal anymore. By the land, yes, 
But now you have to taint your family with the Moabite, and your son with the Moabite will become your partial heir? This doesn't sound like quite so good a deal. And so verse 6, the second part, or no, verse 6 he says, And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So now we're all like, man, Boaz was shrewd. It was smart. He handled it within the law, up front, in broad daylight. But he brought out all the facts and how it was going to any any providentially God working in it. It worked for his favor for what he wanted. So again, we ask here, though, he says, I cannot redeem it for myself. It will impair my own inheritance. It'll 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 slow down what I got going here. I may not be able to fully leave. I won't be able to leave as much for my own heir. And who was this man? He was worried about his inheritance. He was worried about his legacy. What are people going to remember me? I can't taint that with this Moabite woman. And here we stand thousands of years later, and he is nameless. But the one, the one who is concerned about the name of another, we know his name is Boaz. What a legacy is that. What a legacy God gave him because of his selflessness. Because he wasn't worried about the heir. He wasn't worried about his own name. He was worried about carrying out God's plan, carrying out God's desires and his law, and honoring what God wanted, which was to leave a name for Naomi, leave an heir for Elimelech. And we're reading about him thousands of years later. Matthew Henry said this, he said, This kinsman, when we heard the conditions of the bargain, refused it. In like manner, many are shy of the great redemption. They are not willing to espouse religion. They've heard well of it and have nothing to say against it. They will give it their good word, but they are willing to part with it and cannot be bound to it for fear of marring their own inheritance in this world and how true is that and how right was he and the question you have to ask is are you one of those that Matthew Henry spoke of are you like this other unknown kinsman you have no problem with Jesus so we we we, we there's different people in the world, when you go out witnessing on the streets and preaching the gospel, you come across people in all kinds of different areas, um, different perspectives when it comes to Christ. And there's a whole lot of people, especially in this area, who are exactly what Matthew Henry describes there. They know church is a good thing, right? They have no problem with you going to church. Now, we'll come across the other ones that are anti God, anti Christ anti-church, anti-all-good. But these are, are not those. 
And there's actually more of these in the world that you will deal with in a daily basis than there are the anti-God people. They have no problem. They'll say things like, yeah, I, I probably ought to be back in church. Yeah, that Jesus, he was a good guy. He was a good teacher. He had all these good things. They might even come to church on, a, on an occasion. Right? They know it's a good thing. They have no problem with his people. And they're the kind of guys that will try not to cuss in front of the preacher. You know, oh, I'm sorry. Well, why are you sorry to me? You're not sinning against me. You're sinning against God, right? But they're those kind of guys, you know, they respect. They, they won't, uh, you know, they'll, they'll whip their kid for cussing in a church if they're doing something, you know, that kind of stuff. They have, a, they have this level of respect. But when it comes down to it, now, I am not giving up my inheritance. I'm not going to risk marring my own inheritance for that. They've yet to turn from this world to embrace the living God. And just as we find in this book, thousands of years later, this guy has no name. If you're one of those, respect or no respect for religion, for Christ, for the church, but without a true saving faith, without a repentance of this dead world to the true and living God... There's another book your name will not be found in. It's called the book of life. And if your name is not written in that book, you will perish. But there's hope in this. All you have to do is repent and bow your knee to Christ. And he will receive you. And so now, as we see that happen, we see this man back to the historical narrative of this after the train passes. So, so we've seen now that Boaz is going to redeem. The, the no-name guy has, has denied his right. He says, no, you go ahead and redeem Ruth. And that brings us to verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. It's kind of a strange custom is it not i'm going to take off my sandal i was talking to dustin dornick about it several weeks ago and he said you know it could be that they would wear that shoe that way and then if somebody come up later and said hey, i don't think that deal that that deal wasn't true and he could say look at this i got your shoe you can't deny this i'm wearing your shoe i think actually it was it's, it was symbolic of we're going to trade shoes this land that actually belongs to me you are going to tread on it you're going to walk on it i don't know for sure exactly what it is but we do know this it was a way it was like a handshake a signature it was their way of solidifying the deal so when they made this he said okay you are going to take her 
You are going to redeem the land. You're going to redeem Ruth. And in verse 8, Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders. Now we get, we get the elders here. And it's important to understand what their role was in this. They were there in the gates. And if it would have been like a legal, like a, a judicial type action, they would have actually set as kind of on judgment um, about how it went. But this being with inside a clan, with inside a family, they were basically there as witnesses. We're here to let everybody know how this went down. And if it, any kind of question comes up about it later, we're the ones that say, no, this is how it was. And there was no doubt somebody also probably taking note of it um, as well. So he, he does it before the elders. So he took off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And there it is, the moment we've been waiting for, right? Boaz. Now, remember this, though. Ruth is still sitting at home. She has no idea what's going on. She's, her and Naomi are sitting there, a little antsy, right? Just waiting. But she's still sitting at home. But we see it, as the narrator has shown us now, this is the moment we've been waiting for. We see that Naomi and Ruth are going to be fully relieved. And we see God ultimately providing for his people. And we see here the purpose of the earthly redemption. The name of the dead will not be lost. Elimelech's name will carry on. Naomi now will have an heir. And Malon's name will continue. Except there's still that other unresolved issue. And that is the fact that Ruth appears to be barren. So we've done all of this, and Ruth has now been taken care of. She's going to be financially taken care of, and Boaz and Ruth are going to be married. And that is a great story, but yet the ultimate purpose for what this is, which is to carry on the name of the dead, we don't know if that's going to happen. By what we can see, we're still thinking, wait a minute. And then verse 11, though, this is what God's people do. Or this is what we should do in these times. And all the people were at the gate. And the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman. Who, so it's a prayer. They're raising this up to God. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. The two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamor, Tamor, Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from the young woman. The elders come together and other people that were witnesses come together and they raise this up as a petition to God. And here's the thing about this. We've seen God work so much through this story. 
And yet, there's still this uncertainty of whether he will finish what he started. And how guilty are we of the same thing, knowing if you've been a Christian very long, you've seen God work in your life. You've seen things happen. You've seen miracles take place in your own heart, in your own mind. And yet, we come into these obstacles and we think, yeah, but God's not going to do that. And you start to doubt God and you start to doubt your own salvation and you start start to doubt whether or not he is going to complete this and whether or not he is going to provide this and whether or not he will give you the strength to go through these trials and whether or not he will give you the courage to share the gospel. But God doesn't leave things undone. And they prayed. And in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women, this is women plural, said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. Remember where this book started. Remember right after the beginning of the book, Naomi said in chapter 1, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. In other words, the, word, the name Naomi means pleasant. The word Mara means bitter. Do not call me pleasant, but call me bitter, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Her husband died. Her sons died. She had no heir. She was full of hopelessness and despair. But the Lord did not leave her without a redeemer. May his name be renowned. The no-name guy who denied the the right, the no-name guy who was concerned with his own inheritance, with his own name instead of the name of another, his name is not renowned. But the one who was concerned about carrying on the name of another has now been used in the most renowned way. Verse 15, And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. This child born in the most unlikely of circumstances will restore Naomi's hope in life. He's restored the name that will carry on. But he is much more than that. Because through him... He will not only be the restorer of life to Naomi, and he will not only be the restorer of life to Ruth, but through him he will be the restorer of life to all mankind. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. And the writer here gives us 
a glimpse of the future. Gives us a glimpse of the glory of this story. The story is glorious in itself and God providentially providing for his people. It's incredible what has happened. But the story is full of glory. It's an amazing story when you take it further because they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Even those reading this in Old Testament ancient audiences can see the great significance of this now, at least some of it. Because this unlikely child of a Moabite, this unlikely child of a pagan woman from a pagan culture is now we see the great-grandfather of the great king of Israel, David. Anybody that came after David adored David. He was the one who liberated him. He was the one who, I mean, you all know the story of David. He was the one who, as a child, stood up against the giant. He's the one who killed the tens of thousands and led Israel to the height. They were dominating. And he was their leader who got it done. And he was the son, or he was in the lineage of a Moabite. This Moabite son has just entered the royal line of the one who would lead Israel to greatness. But yet, that's still short-sighted. It goes farther than that. Verse 18, I'll read the end of the chapter. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nishon. Nishon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Now, if you will, turn to Matthew. Chapter 1. In the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it gives the entire lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you understand Jewish tradition and you understand Jewish culture and you understand the time even when Jesus was on the earth and the the elevation that the Jewish people held themselves, you would understand that the most unlikely people to be in the royal priesthood lineage would be a Moabite. It's crazy. It's completely unlikely. But as you know, David was certainly in the lineage of Christ. Look there in verse 5. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And you read down to the end, and this is the lineage of Christ. 
But looking a little closer at the lineage there, if you caught that, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Do you remember who Rahab was? Rahab the harlot? We thought Ruth was unlikely. But now we see Boaz's mother, or grandmother, depending on how that is, but Boaz's lineage has come through a prostitute. Not a Jewish prostitute, a pagan harlot. Certainly not what would be considered royal bloodlines of the time. A harlot and a pagan. A harlot and a Moabite. Questionable does not even cover this lifestyle. Ruth was leading a life that was full of integrity. We can see that, at least from the point that we see her. And we know there's none right, so we know that there's questionable things in her past. But here we have a harlot, a prostitute. How is it that God can use these filthy pagan sinners in the lineage of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who is perfect and holy? How can he do this because that Messiah is the Redeemer? That is the overarching purpose, even over all of this. The real purpose of the Goel. You remember the word Goel? It's the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer. The real purpose of Boaz and Ruth is to point to the true Redeemer. And God intricately has designed this, has brought this about, that Boaz is a picture of Christ, and he's also in the lineage of Christ. The truth is, we... None of us, none of them, none of the Jews, nobody was worthy of being in the royal priesthood. Not David, not Solomon, not Abraham, not Adam. But they're all there. Why? Because he and he alone could live a life that they couldn't live and die that perfect sacrifice. The lamb without spot and blemish. The one who didn't deserve to die did so that we could have life. And he has used sinners like you and I ever since. He used them in his lineage. He used them in these Redeemer cases. I mean, Boaz gets to be a picture of Christ. Are you kidding me? Boaz is a sinner. He was born of a harlot. And he gets to be a picture of Christ? How incredible is that? But more incredible is that, is that we get to be under the redemption of Christ. We get to be like Ruth. Ruth is a picture of us. She got redeemed. Naomi got redeemed and we are that. Helpless and hopeless. That's what Ruth was. She had no chance of survival apart from somebody intervening on her behalf. And helpless and hopeless, we are without Christ. And that is is the story of Ruth. That is the ultimate 
purpose of the book of Ruth. And I hope that you have enjoyed, enjoyed it as much as I have. You know, I was thinking, it's pretty fresh on our, several of our minds um, with the men that went up and preached the gospel at the, um, the gay pride parade. And if you follow Don Curran on Facebook, he just did the same thing yesterday, I think. And he put a picture up. I don't know if it was him or somebody with him that tagged him, I don't know. But there was a picture of somebody at that parade. And it, had, it was a T-shirt, and it had some kind of weird deal on it, and it said, Dead Inside. And he said, this is the most accurate description of this that I can see. And their story was very similar to the story that we heard of the men here. And I was thinking as I was studying this about Rahab, as I, as I was just thinking about Rahab the prostitute. Depravity is not new. This debauchery that we're seeing, we're seeing it celebrated maybe more than what we're used to in our culture. But it has been there since the beginning. Man's depravity is always been there. Prostitution was very real and alive in this time. And we see Jesus save the harlot. And so when we consider these things that are going on in our world, we have to remember that. The most unlikely of sinners being used in the lineage of Christ the most unlikely of sinners today can be standing in screaming opposition to the gospel message and they are not past redemption. They have a redeemer who will pull those out of despair.